0: This is an RNZ podcast. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta.
1: Earlier this month, that was how the powerful founder and chief executive of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, suddenly announced a new name for his trillion-dollar company. The Facebook social network, which now has more than 2.5 billion users, will still be known as such, but along with WhatsApp and Instagram, Meta will be the parent company. And Mark Zuckerberg's new plan is what he calls a metaverse, a virtual world for us all to socialise in digitally in about five years from now. And here's how he introduced that idea in a special video as a cartoonish avatar of himself.
0: Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh Who made this place? It's awesome. Right? It's from a crater. I met in L.A. Uh, This place is... Amazing.
1: <laughs> Boz, that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. I thought I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> Whoa. And as part of the rebranding PR package, there were also videos of contrived chats between Mark Zuckerberg and his own employees.
0: So one of the most important aspects will be live service games that launch updates and new downloadable content regularly, like Echo VR, Beat Saber, Onward, Pistol Whip, and more. Beat Saber has a passionate community.
1: Oh, I love Beat Saber. So do I. By the way, Beat Saber is a virtual reality rhythm game created in the Czech Republic, set in a futuristic world where you slash the beats of adrenaline-pumping music with a digital sword as they fly towards you. But it seems that Facebook even talks to its own people like this. He is part of a leaked internal HR video for the US-based staff of Facebook who suddenly found themselves working for Meta earlier this month. To review what's changing on the People Portal
0: and decide what benefits you'll need for 2022. If you don't actively enroll, your current benefits will carry forward, except for your FSA contributions.
1: And who wouldn't want to work for Meta? But while Mark Zuckerberg was pointing to a new company with an upbeat, new, forward facing vision, Facebook and its founder is also facing a PR nightmare right now in the form of all the fallout from the Facebook files. Whistleblower Francis Hogan teamed up with a PR agency and 17 separate media outlets, and her leaks have made headlines all over the world about Facebook failing to confront the damage that it knows it's doing to its users with bullying, hate speech, and misinformation. And instead of confronting that meaningfully, the company has actually tried to suppress it all. Delivering this year's BBC Wreath lectures in the UK, which are yet to be broadcast, Artificial intelligence expert Stuart J. Russell from Berkeley in the US was reported as saying that what has happened at Facebook was worse than Chernobyl as a wake-up call. And there to see it was Rory Kathleen Jones, who earlier this month retired after covering technology for the BBC since before Facebook was founded in Mark Zuckerberg's university dorm room. And Rory is also the author of the recent book Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. So... Should we be hopeful or fearful about that future and about Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse?
0: I joined the BBC uh, as a fresh-faced youngster in September 1981. Uh, yeah, I, I, I effectively I reported on technology for about 20 years, but I was officially named technology correspondent in 2007, So, which is quite a good time to start, I have to say.
1: Well, a little bit before that, about 10 years before that, it's pure coincidence, but I might have been down the hall from you. I think the business unit was down, I worked in the World Television in the uh, the television centre there in West London and I think you guys were just down the hall um, with the likes of Richard Quest and uh, I think Adam Curtis and others. Uh, so you will have seen... The web developed through, you know, Web 1.0, a digital version of publishing stuff that otherwise would have been printed. Then two-way Web 2.0, people could interact with it. Now, Mark Zuckerberg is promising us a metaverse in about five years' time. All this must be pretty dizzying to have to have gone all the way through this as a tech reporter.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're so immersed in it that you don't often step back and think about that. But yeah, I, I got uh, my first uh, proper home computer in 1995 uh, and hooked it up to the internet and uh, got the family round the, the screen. And we all stood there absolutely bewitched by it because a, a picture from the Louvre, the Louvre Museum in Paris, which was one of the very early websites, animated onto the screen. And we, we all thought it was magic. From then on, it, the funny thing was, I usually had better technology at home than at work you know, like all big organisations, the BBC was uh, reasonably slow at giving people, you know, the state-of-the-art technology. Uh, and I think that was a general shift in the world. The, the people began, people who were interested in it, began to have, you know, better technology at their disposal than than their, their bosses were going to give them. So uh, I, I, I watched it grow even before uh, it was my job to watch it grow.
1: Well, it didn't... Your book, you talk a bit about this because being immersed in it—that's one of the problems, isn't it? Standing back and trying to work out, you know, what's nuts and bolts, what's details, you know, what's the nerdy stuff, and what is of genuine significance. And um, you may be sick of the anecdote now, but you—you you had to front up. You—you you were complained about for reporting the iPhone launch. For the BBC, because people said this is publicity, this is a product launch. You have later said, look, effectively, we didn't know it at the time. This is, you know, the Model T Ford of tech.
0: Yeah, I was there in the hall in 2007, January 2007. I'd just been officially named technology correspondent. And I was there when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone in the most extraordinary performance, which at first, as a kind of cynical British journalist, I was a bit kind of, oh, please, when he said, we're gonna make history here today. And we had this extraordinary crowd of people cheering and hollering and yelling, which is not a very British way of behaving. Uh, but gradually during that uh, hour and a half session of this masterful presentation, uh, I w- I was captivated. What was shown to us was so different from what we'd seen before in terms of uh, mobile technology that um, uh, I was captivated. And and so were my bosses, actually. Well, uh, at least a producer in London rang me and said, you've got to get your hand on that phone. And I did get my hands on that phone somehow. And yes, there were complaints to the BBC when we put it on the nightly news, the 10 o'clock news, that this was just a product launch. And yes, I stuck my neck out and said, well... What about if the BBC had been around when Henry Ford unveiled the Model T Ford? um, Would that have just been a product launch? No, it was the beginning of the the automotive age, the age of popular motoring. Maybe this will be the beginning of another era. And luckily, uh, I was proved right. I wasn't. I'm not being right about everything, but it was a moment in history because that turned out to be the most sing, the most profitable single product in history, the iPhone, and it launched this smartphone era, which we're seeing the consequences of even today.
1: Indeed. Well, the the book is subtitled Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. Can you, at this point in your career and your long vantage point? can you say where the balance is? Should we be hopeful or fearful of where it's all heading?
0: Well, I, I think we go through this with all new technologies. I mean, we went through it with uh, with radio, for heaven's sake. Um, people thought that that would corrupt youth. And obviously, television, I grew up in, in, in the age when parents used to say to children, why don't you switch off the television and go do some, something more useful instead? This is a frankly, a much more powerful, much more immersive, much more interactive technology, which has its pluses and definitely its minuses. And we've seen that in recent weeks with what we've learned about Facebook. uh, You know, the most powerful of those social networks, which uh, I describe in the book as forming the social smartphone era, because it's the combination of those networks with these brilliant devices that, uh, has forced through so much change so we we are seeing the damaging effects um i heard a great expert on uh artificial intelligence the other night uh giving a lecture in which he compared facebook uh and what it had been doing to chernobyl as a kind of wake-up call <laughs> to the dangers of this uh of this particular technology which may be going it a bit but um yeah, I am concerned, I share people's concerns, but I still feel uh, that A, it's inevitable, and B, that the, I'm a glass half full person, I see lots of positives to this technology, particularly highlighted by what's happened over the last 18 months, where, frankly, those of us who've been locked, as, uh, as I have been for long stretches in, in, in my loft in West London, uh, wouldn't have been without that kind of connectivity.
1: Mm, absolutely. Yes that's Professor Stuart Russell you re- referred to there who was giving the the Reith lectures about the the threats and possibilities of AI.
0: Well yeah I mean the wreath the lectures which you you will be able to hear in December I think um uh, cover all sorts of areas it's it's, it's uh, you know matters of public policy matters of public concern and obviously technology and artificial intelligence which is another sort of theme of my book in particular are hugely important right now. And um, I think these lectures will give a fascinating insight into, again, the hopes and fears surrounding that technology.
1: Well, Rory, you mentioned there Facebook are currently in the gun here. They're facing a lot of heat um, after the revelations in the Wall Street Journal and Francis Hogan and so on. In your book, you recall an interview with a Facebook executive and you observed that the the company its founder were not arrogant but didn't seem to need... Feel the need for external advice, and this is many years back, right? That you have this particular encounter, but I wonder is is that still it? Are they incapable of looking at themselves and thinking, "Are we the baddies?
0: That he has got a track record, Mark Zuckerberg, of being to be charitable a bit late in recognizing the power of his platform and its capacity to cause harm. I, I don't know if you remember, but very shortly after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, uh, he was at some public event where he just laughed at the idea that fake news on Facebook could have played any role in the election. And he had to kind of take that back. He reminds me of the the kind of the boy in The Sorcerer's Apprentice with the the mops and the the ever-rising tide of water completely incapable of controlling what his his creation has become Um, and the other concerning thing about it of course is that he has got almost unlimited power he's not like any other chief executive he's got a sort of controlling state the way the the share structure works he he's sort of unsackable Uh, I mean it, it, it served him very well in the early days I mean when I first met him uh, in 2008, it's just four years in. Uh, and I was foolish enough to suggest that he should have sold up when he was offered a billion dollars for the company. And of course, now
1: <laughs> he was 24 uh, years
0: old at the time. That, that was not that, yeah, he was 24 years old at the time. Uh, he could have relaxed, uh, he could have kicked back, but he said, No, no, what would I do? And of course, it's now a trillion dollar company, or it, it is at times a trillion dollar company, but. It was that single-mindedness which which built Facebook. That when whenever he was told, you know, to bring in quotes adult supervision to do things differently, he had his own vision. I, I, I think the interview you're referring to was with a guy called Chris Cox, mm-hmm. who was a sort of uh, sidekick and is still at the, at the company and really important. Uh, and he told me back in 2010 that Zuckerberg was like a a man from the future who comes back and tells us that everything's going to be cool. And everything's going to be awesome, um, and the trouble is, eh, we no longer quite believe that everything in in Facebook's world is quite so cool or awesome. At the time, also,
1: we wouldn't. No one could have assumed how much this platform and people's um, people's social media habits and online habits would actually intersect with the news media, with journalism. Uh, a lot of people were in short order getting their news via Facebook feeds, uh, and. Another startling part of your book is that early on there was quite a few people I think even within the company saying that this actually wasn't a tremendously popular function and some even suggested turning it off they didn't like all these recommendations from either sources or friends and family you know popping up and intruding on their um, online experience but it really has become a critical avenue for the news media which has affected the viability of commercial media companies all over the world
0: Yeah and it's been a very difficult relationship because Um, It's Facebook has not been, quotes a constant sort of friend, as it were, to the news media. It blows hot and cold. So I think news organisations are in a very difficult position because they know that this is the way to reach a huge audience. And they've got to be there. But policy can change in a moment. So there was an incident a few years back where facebook said right video is going to be hugely important we're going to have a pivot to video and news organizations many of them started changing their workforces so that there were loads of people working on video and other people were kind of heaved over the side and then uh, after a few months facebook had a look uh, and, and revealed rather sort of Guiltily that uh, actually nobody's watching those videos, so we're gonna we're gonna change again. And all those news organisations which had made those big investments uh, were in a hole. And of course, they couldn't afford to be in that kind of hole. That uh, the what imbal- one of the huge problems, of course, is the imbalance of power. If you think of a, for instance, a regional newspaper uh, organisation in wherever in in the UK, in New Zealand, uh, wherever, uh, it's just such a minnow compared with the might of Facebook with its two and a half billion uh, and more users.
1: Mm. Now, when in recent days we've seen Mark Zuckerberg himself, uh, almost Steve Jobs style, uh, announcing the metaverse and the rebranding of the company, uh, which, you know, cynics would say, well, that's what companies do when their brand has become toxic. You know, they'll change their name and try to point people's attention elsewhere. However, this is clearly something he's planning on. I mean, when he says this could be within five years, we'll be living in this metaverse, I mean, the, the, the actual communications, the, the video just seem kind of laughable almost, you know, the, um, him and his mates in that, that sort of cartoon household. Um, and, and also there are interviews... We've seen internal ones where he's talking to his own colleagues and they're having these extremely inauthentic conversations about how awesome everything is going yeah. to be. And you want to laugh at it. However, look at the track record of, of what it's achieved. D- does the news media have to assume we've got to take this seriously? We could be operating in a kind of universe of which Mark Zuckerberg and his company are, will be huge in shaping it?
0: I do think we have to take it seriously, even though you know I share some of the scepticism around it. So, I mean, this is not a, a new idea. I mean, uh, I don't know if you remember something called Second Life, which was a kind of virtual world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a news organisation did actually post some poor reporter to that uh, se- th- that, that virtual world. Uh, Reuters uh, took one of their reporters and t- changed his name to Adam Reuters and made him live in Second Life and report stories from there, which didn't last long. The, the truth is we are living more of our lives online, uh, as you know, as my book shows, you know, that the, the amount of time we spend uh looking at our phones, uh, WhatsApping, Facebooking, Instagramming, TikToking is growing and growing. At the moment, it's it's a 2D experience. Uh and you know, what, what Mark Zuckerberg is saying is it will be a 3D experience and a much more immersive experience. The trouble is. You have to get people at the moment accepting the idea of putting on a headset to do that. So far, that has proved to be quite a niche activity. The sort of $64 billion question is whether that will become a general activity, uh, wanting to spend time in in, in virtual worlds. And I'm still a bit sceptical that without some huge technological breakthrough that makes it less clunky, many people want to do that.
1: I mean, is there every possibility that people themselves will reject it? They just won't want it, and they won't want uh, Facebook and that company um, with its track record having an even bigger role in their lives. Or alternatively, will it will there come a tipping point where governments, regulators say, we cannot put up with this sort of dominance? It's too it's too dangerous. It's too anti-democratic. If that's not too dramatic, to have one company with all this influence on the technology we use.
0: Well, I certainly think that there'll be a lot of pushback at, about Facebook, sorry Meta, running the metaverse, given given its track record. Uh, and it has been interesting to see that Mark Zuckerberg has very much been stressing, "Oh, this is going to be a kind of open source, democratic space where you know no one com- company will control the standards." He has got a head start in this vision. He, we, there was some scepticism when he bought Oculus, the, the virtual reality company, but that now seems to be been a good move. So he will have um, the power to shape that metaverse if, if, if it is going to become a big thing. And I think regulators will have to be uh, looking very closely at, at, at his influence. But there is still the, the wider question of whether people will be comfortable with the experience in general, and I don't think that's a given.
1: Well, if we turn back again to the news media and the role of of journalism and its future, I mean, you mentioned there that Facebook blows hot and cold on the media and journalism. I wonder, at times they seem very ambivalent to it, but at all times, and like all the big tech platforms, they've been very anxious not to be put into a corner of given the responsibilities of being a publisher. They say we're merely a platform. We've seen Australia, our near neighbours, really confronting uh, the likes of Google and Facebook and pretty much pushing them into the position of having to pay uh, Australian news media to uh, run and distribute their stories. Are we likely to see more of that? Journalism media has a social function and that they actually have to do a bit more because of the influence they wield over it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that was very interesting, that Australian case, because the, the sort of wise people of the internet, as, as it were, uh whether or not they like Facebook, thought that was a terrible idea. That you know, you you couldn't force people to carry your material, uh, which effectively it was doing. But Australia's sort of gamble seemed to to come off, and has I think inspired governments around the world who will be looking closely at that. In the end, though, it's going to be pocket money to the likes of Facebook and Google, and they may you know they may grumble about it, but they won't be too worried because. They won't see it as a major threat to their business models. These are, are two businesses which what they've captured in an extraordinary fashion is the mobile advertising industry, which uh, has become the dominant industry, the, the, the fuel for, the, for the, the whole sort of mobile Internet, which obviously is a huge business. And while they've got that kind of control, they won't worry about being asked to send a few dollars uh, to this news organization or that.
1: Yeah, mobile advertising used to mean, you know, a sign on the side of a van being towed around town and parked by the railway station, didn't it? Not anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing, I was looking the other day at what Facebook said in its IPO when it, it floated its shares back in 2012. There was a risk factor in that document saying, well, you know, as, as, as the world goes mobile, maybe, you know, our advertising won't work in the mobile world. Uh, and of course, it very much did. And it became the way it made money. And that is why Google and Facebook are such hugely powerful companies today. Wow. And
1: 2012 is not that long ago that I guess in uh, media and digital terms, it, it really is. But uh, I wonder, do you believe they only really care about the big markets where they operate? And we found that from the Facebook files, didn't we? That so much of their moderation effort for disinformation is overwhelmingly focused on the US, even though most of the users are you know, elsewhere on the planet.
0: Well, they'd not be unusual. No no multinational company uh, uh, doesn't care about its biggest markets or or, or gives disproportionate attention to its smaller markets. Uh, That having been said, you know, the English-speaking world uh, in general has had far more focus from Facebook than than other parts of the world. I think, you know, the, the, the real concern... That's highlighted in those Facebook papers was uh, the damage it's caused almost without thinking in places like Myanmar and in, in, in various African countries where it has become hugely influential very quickly. It has, frankly, become the internet uh, in places like Myanmar. Uh, where you know there, there was nothing in terms of connectivity uh, a decade ago, and and, and now there, there there is plenty, a- and it hasn't got the expertise to work out what's going on in all those different languages. And the results uh, are sometimes horrific in terms of... I've I've uh, been at
1: international news conferences, sorry to interrupt you there, Rory, but where that very issue was discussed, and this is getting on for five years ago, and they had executives there for their Asia-Pacific region saying, we know it, we recognise it, we are hiring uh, language specialists in those countries Uh, we're on it, give us time. Yes, things have grown far faster than we were able to adapt to them. We acknowledge it, but trust us. And I mean, five years later, it doesn't feel like uh, those criticisms um, are any less strong or or credible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose, to be fair, some of the, the, the documents that have emerged are a couple of years old. But it is it does give you that picture of you know the, these people in in a in a flooding basement with the water rising ever higher desperately trying to bail it out we often forget what a huge empire it is it's not just uh facebook it's whatsapp uh, which itself has all sorts of issues in terms of spreading conspiracy theories and um uh, uh ethnic abuse and so on and instagram which again is incredibly powerful in terms of Uh, teenagers in particular. And then there's Oculus, which, as we've discussed, is increasingly becoming its focus as it moves into the metaverse. But generally, uh, despite all the talk, the kind of happy clappy talk uh, ten years ago that the Internet was a a different place, uh, a, a place without borders where everyone was equal they they would still wait for California to wake up before giving you an answer to a question and that would take quite some time. And Facebook are by far from the worst. I mean, the, the most controlling company on earth is Apple, which has uh, had what's been a very effective policy for it of hardly ever doing any interviews at all. I certainly didn't have an interview uh, in the last decade with anybody from Apple because mm-hmm. they do not think it's worth engaging outside the United States.
1: Well, in an episode of uh, the BBC's media show, I talked to one person who was from the website Politico in the US, and her job title was tech lobbying reporter Emily Birnbaum. And at first when I heard that, I kind of chuckled. I thought, what a, what a hilarious job title. But actually, I mean, the fact that these companies have grown in the way they have, that they're so lightly regulated uh, in a lot of countries, including New Zealand, uh, it really is something that I think demands of having a correspondent dedicated to it because somehow by the lobbying or just by the, the skill and attractiveness of their products combined with lobbying, they really have avoided the sort of regulation that even big outfits like Microsoft have faced in the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, the tide has obviously turned in the last uh, couple of years and there, there is a determination in lots of countries to to crack down. In the UK, we've got this online safety bill making its way through Parliament. But there are huge problems for for regulation because, frankly, no 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 country wants to stifle its own innovative businesses, and you know you can't have regulation that applies to one company and not another. So it, it, let's let's not pretend it's an easy easy route to go down.
1: Well, speaking of not taking the easy route, uh, the whole last part of your book, always on, Rory, um, tech and a health crisis. Uh, so. I'm guessing that when you offered this book to your publisher or decided what to write, you weren't planning on writing a whole uh, part of the book on that. Well, I mean, great that you did it, because this is this is really a, something where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? A global crisis like this. And then we find out both the pros and cons of, of having these platforms uh, you know, with such reach across the globe, don't we?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing was when uh, the publisher's came and discussed this book with me in 2019, late 2019, the last section of the whole section of the book was going to be about health, but it was going to be about my health. I've got various health challenges and my optimism that technology could play a role. And then as I was writing it, the the global pandemic came along, um, trapped me in my attic here and gave me plenty of food for thought and plenty of stories about, uh, a, as you say, the negatives and and the positive sides of technology during a pandemic, but also uh, about the nitty gritty of of using technology, to, for instance, track people's contacts using apps to to try and battle COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah, extraordinary. And this, um, yes, it's um, you've, you found that you had Parkinson's disease a few um, years back, also um, cancer as well, and then social networks kind of amplify people's knowledge of what to me is your personal, (laughs) private uh, medical situation. But uh, has it actually been a help in in the end?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I made a conscious decision in in the middle of 2019, a few months after I'd been diagnosed, somebody said to me, a producer said to me, because I'd been seen on TV with my hand shaking, have you thought of going public? And I said, yeah, I thought about it and let's do it. And I, I put out a tweet explaining that I had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And it was hugely positive. I got a great reaction, got a lot of support. I then made it part of my journalism, at least to look, for instance, at the technology which is emerging that could use smartphones and other sensors to to track Parkinson's disease and other conditions. So, for, for me, it's it's been positive both in both personally and in my in my journalism. Uh, and I've also found that. Uh, other people who've, who've got it sort of welcome that because there's been a tendency to be quite secretive about the condition. People will, in some jobs are worried that, you know, frankly, they might get fired if their boss knew that they'd been diagnosed with this. They might might be seen as not really up to their job. So uh, I think it has been positive. It was Rory Kethlin-Jones
1: who recently retired from the BBC after more than 20 years covering technology and he's also the author of a new book all about it called Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era.